Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. That other disciple was well known to the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest's house, while Peter stayed outside by the gate. Then the other disciple went back out, spoke to the girl at the gate, and brought Peter inside. Aren't you also one of the disciples of that man? No. I'm not. It was cold, so the servants and guards had built a charcoal fire and were standing around it, warming themselves. So Peter went over and stood with them, warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have always spoken publicly to everyone. All my teaching was done in the synagogues and in the temple where all the people come together. I have never said anything in secret. Why then do you question me? Question the people who heard me. Ask them what I told them. They know what I said. How dare you talk like that to the high priest? If I have said anything wrong, Tell everyone here what it was. But if I am right in what I have said, why do you hate me? Then Annas sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter was still standing there, keeping himself warm. So the others said to him, Aren't you also one of the disciples of that man? No, I am not. But Peter denied it. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, spoke up. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? No. And at once, a rooster crowed. You know what it felt like, um felt like dad strength you know when you were a kid and you're wrestling with your dad you know and he's just taking all the hits and he's toying with you and then boom he just takes you down jesus setting me straight that day i felt a lot like that okay okay i know i know hindsight is 2020 but at that time and at that moment, I just couldn't figure out what he was talking about, you know? I mean, why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to die? No, 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 not on my watch. This wasn't going to happen. No, sir. It just wasn't like he was, he was thinking straight, you know? I kept thinking maybe he's dehydrated, maybe he's hungry. The man never got enough to eat, if you ask me. So I... He stops me. Me, he looks me in the eyes because he has those eyes. And you know what he said to me? Get behind me, Satan. Dad's strength. Those words, those eyes. That moment floored me. He floored me. But I mean, seriously, get behind me, Satan. All right, I admit I have some flaws, you know, but Satan, I mean, that stung a bit, you know what I'm saying? I mean, 
I just didn't get it. I just didn't see the whole picture. Which won't be the last time that'll happen, mind you. <laughs> you see, I, I wanted him to use that, that dad strength on the world, you know? I mean, my desires, my plans. And your boy, Peter's plans, they don't always work out so good. I.e., ear slicing, etc. But he knew, he knew all along, he would give us just enough rope for allow us to figure things out for ourselves. And then he just, he had that dad strength, you know? He pulls back in. Right at that moment, we needed saving from ourselves. That was his plan all along. Saving us from ourselves. Saving me from myself. Good morning, everybody. Always good to see you. Always good to greet you. Glad you're here this morning. And uh, we're in John 18. Uh, The passage that was uh, dramatized for us this morning is uh, John 18. We've got a time change uh, next week, just uh, to remind you in advance. uh, We spring forward uh, one hour. Um, You'll know that we've been making our way uh, to Easter. And uh, Easter's not all that far away. We're, we're in a season that's called Lent. Uh, began with Ash Wednesday about a week and a half ago. And it's now a six-week journey to the cross, to the resurrection. Uh, and I'm actually pleased that our study is coordinating very well as we come uh, to Easter time. We're right into the time of the Passion, uh, time of the crucifixion and the resurrection and so uh, we're, we're, we're slowing the pace now. We're slowing the pace. No longer a chapter a Sunday, but we'll move to, from theme to theme, arriving uh, at John chapter 20 on uh, Easter Sunday. My mother used to talk about her mother, my grandmother, and how she guided her children. There were six children in their family, uh, they had larger families years ago. And my grandmother, as I recall her, uh, it seems to me, uh, because I knew her as an elderly grandma, an elderly lady, she seemed very soft and very tender and very mild. And, but my mom tells me that that wasn't the full story when she was in her prime. Uh, she was in control of her kids. And apparently she had a look and a gesture. She didn't need to use any words, Mom said, but Grandma would give you the look. And she would lift that finger, and it wiggled a little bit. And you knew it was time to step into line. Amazing the power of a look and the power of an index finger. 
My sense is that moms must practice that look because they get pretty good at it. I don't know. Do you moms, do you go into the bathroom and close the door and try to get the look? Because you, you seem to have that down. Probably better than dads. I could never get the look. I, the kids always thought I was joking or teasing, and, but they never said, Dad's got the look. At least I never heard them say that. But moms, they seem to get it down. And kids, when, when mom comes around the corner and she's got the look, well, everybody falls into line. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, the passage that's in front of us will bring us to the look that did Peter in. He was devastated by the look, but we'll come to that. Three decades ago, a man by the name of David Augsburger wrote a book that most of us uh, students who went to seminary, at least, had to read somewhere along our training. It was called Caring Enough to Confront. And Augsburger coined a phrase that has lasted all these years, and it's called carefronting. Not confronting, but carefronting. It's a way of communicating with others that helps people to overcome their hurdles and their failures and their mistakes in such a way that preserves them and restores them and helps them get back onto the journey of life without feeling like they can never soar again, like they're done, like they're finished, like they failed so utterly that life is not worth the living. The very best carefronting comes early in life. You know this. Between a parent and a child, how essential is carefronting in the growing up years of a young family? How unwise are parents who fail to carefront their children? Failure to care confront or carefront at the front end of a journey becomes much more challenging as every year goes by. But how unwise to confront a child by being harsh and almost brutal, almost assaulting, so that a child is wounded so deeply that they have to fight inside of their spirit to gain their balance and to gain their dignity. So it's called carefronting. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27, verse uh, 6. The best one to do the carefronting is always a friend or a parent. Because the reason for the confrontation grows out of a deep friendship. And even though there are some wounds, if I can say it, they're good wounds. They're good wounds. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Same with our children. The tough work of carefronting is our hardest role as parents. But because we love our children, we take the time to guide them and correct them and to discipline them, even when we are not the most popular person in the world. Notice that? Oh, what a tough job. But we are their parents. Carefronting. 
different than harsh confronting. Now, I want us to, to take a few moments this morning to observe the master carefronter himself and to see how he models how to preserve and how to care for his dear, dear friend and follower, Peter. Now, Peter didn't do too well in his final exam, did he? We, we saw it on the drama. While Peter was facing the greatest storm of his life, Peter scored a dismal D minus. Okay, maybe F on his report card. The story is in John 18, and I hope if you've got your Bible smartphone, you'll turn, and I guess it's also on the insert as well. But if you only read that passage, and you, you might not catch the power of the passage. So I want us to back up and take the panoramic photo that, all, that includes John 18, but also includes some other passages. So there is a little insert this morning. If it's helpful to you, please use it. If not, it's good doodle paper. Number one, uh, Peter's failure was not a blowout. It was a slow leak. His, his failure was not a blowout. It, was a, it starts with a slow leak. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23? I think you know that Jesus was always aware of his mission and what that would look like. He was aware from the very beginning that his mission would take him to the cross. His disciples had trouble getting that message into their hearts. But Jesus knew from the very beginning why he had come, what his mission was. And so Matthew 16 says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. Our friend, Peter, could not handle Jesus talking like that. And verse 22 says that Peter took Jesus aside. Now, you can almost see the picture. He took Jesus aside. You can see him putting his hand around his neck. And kind of, buddy, come on. Let me, let me take you over here. Uh, we, we need to have a talk. And it, 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 it indicates that Peter reprimanded Jesus and said, no, things will never, you will never die. There is not a cross. There is no suffering Let's not get that stuff in front of the rest of the guys. We're going to confuse everybody here. And Peter actually confronts Jesus. And you can almost see Jesus. He comes back at Peter, takes that hand off of his shoulder, wheels him around, and says, Peter, listen to me. Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Oh, my. What did Peter say to that? We have nothing. We have nothing. No response. But maybe the thud 
the sound of the thud of his chin hitting his chest. Wow. Peter didn't get it, that he was actually spouting the words of the adversary. That's what the enemy would say. No cross, no suffering, no pain. That's not on the radar. Sometimes we don't hear what we're saying either. In an attempt to put the very best words forward, or even our best foot forward, we spin it. We spin it. And we say, oh, no, 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 no. You're fine. That will never happen. Things are not going to look like that. Instead, we might sometimes say, I don't know. I don't know what's coming down the road. But Lord, whatever's coming down the road, we want to be with you. And we want to have your plan that's foremost in front of our, our lives and our hearts. And we want to walk with you. And you just say that humbly. Why did Jesus care front Peter? Actually, Jesus gave us the reasons. They're wonderful here. And they're great clues for us when needing to confront someone else. One, he said, you're a dangerous trap to me. Or another translation says, you're a stumbling block. I mean, maybe somebody doesn't know they're a stumbling block. And you can help them if you do it in a way that it can be received. Secondly, Jesus said, you're looking at things from a human perspective. And you're not seeing it from God's perspective. We're looking at this thing from a, a selfish perspective when God says, I want you to look at it from my perspective. And maybe someone needs to care front and say, you know, you've got to get your perspective back. You've got to get God's perspective in this thing. So two appropriate times to care front. One, when someone is a stumbling block. And two, when we're looking from a very human, very selfish perspective instead of looking from God's perspective. Okay, now would you join me in Luke's gospel at chapter 22? Now, this is a little hard to even imagine. This is happening at the Last Supper. Now, you would think that as everything begins to wind down and the cross is looming, that there would be a strong sense of comradeship among the disciples. I mean, you're really being together. You're going into war. You've got to be together. You've got to be linked shoulder to shoulder well-connected in these final days. Friends, do you know what was happening in their ranks? Verse 24, you'll never believe this. They were arguing among themselves. Now, what could they possibly be arguing? They're going into war. What could they be arguing about? Can you believe it? They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Which of us is going to rise to the top and be the president? (laughs) And Jesus gives them a little insight that the way they're talking aligns more with the world than who they are called to be. And he goes through a little explanation here. He said, that's the way of the world. It's a world that has a pecking order. It's a world that has employers and employees. It's a world that has a chain of command. That's the system we're in. That's always been the system we're in. That always will be the system of the world. But then he says in verse 26, Jesus says, but among you it will be different. 
Among you, it will be different. But let your eyes go down to verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's asked to sift you like wheat. Now, in front of the rest of the men, this is public. Jesus care fronts uh, Peter once again. <clears throat> and the word you in Luke twenty-two thirty-one is plural. So it reads, Satan asked to have you, you all, to have all the disciples, that he might sift them like wheat. Now look at the next verse. He said, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your, now it changes to individual, that your faith, it's different, your faith should not fail. It's more individualized here. So it's Peter, you are in the crosshairs of the enemy. Actually, the words could be translated, Satan has begged to have you for himself. Wow, doesn't that make you sit upright? Satan has begged to have you for himself. I sincerely believe that this is still going on today. I do. Satan would love to take some people out. Because he'd just like to get them out of the way. Maybe they're being effective in the kingdom. He'd love to move them out. But the Savior is praying for us. Thank you, Lord. He's praying for our protection. He's praying for our strength. He's praying for our preservation. And the next sentence is so intriguing to me, and it's a foreshadowing, I think, of what is to come. He says, so, Peter, when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Doesn't that sound a little familiar? Like John 21? It's a big heads up, Peter. Be aware. Be aware. <clears throat> And, and you know, Jesus doesn't say that Peter won't fail. What does he say? I prayed that your faith should not fail. Oh. He will get through it, and his faith will get through it, and he will be restored. But nevertheless, he will hit a wall, a big wall. He will fail. It doesn't say he will not fail. <clears throat> it just says... I prayed that your faith should not fail. I've prayed that your faith should not fail. But Peter, when it's all over and the dust has settled, you will know that I still love you and I still want to use you. It seems like Peter can't even deal with these words from Jesus. Uh, he doesn't even stop to ask any questions. Lord, what are you getting at here? Ooh, what are you saying? What are you hinting at? He doesn't stop to ask any questions. Verse 33, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. That's his response. And I think Peter meant exactly what he said. We saw last week how he was willing to pull out the sword and inflict as much damage as he possibly could. No, Peter's problem was not insincerity. Peter's problem was that he was so unaware, so uninformed, so not in touch 
And sometimes that's where we're all at, isn't it? We're all there. You know, and whatever you say, Ward, you can count on me. Boy, I got it together. I, I'll, you send me into the battlefield and I'm there. You can count on me. We start to talk like that and feel like you've got all the confidence in the world. You're about to step on a spiritual banana peel. You're going to have a slip up. Whenever we get too confident, too overconfident, we could expect some slippage. Whoever thinks they stand, take lead lest they fall. Here's actually why it's helpful to care front. Jesus care fronts Peter. Why? For the purpose of strengthening. That's why he did it. For the purpose of strengthening. Look at verse 34. Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Jesus is trying to help Peter see his blind spots. He's trying to strengthen him to the, in the areas of his vulnerability. When we're weak, the Lord tries to alert us. He's saying, pick up on this, pick up on this, pick up on this. I'm telling you something about what's coming down the road, so get ready. This is how vulnerable you are, Peter. Before the day's over, you'll have already denied me three times. Peter's failure was huge. He was prone to act in the flesh. He was prone to let pride govern his thinking. Overconfidence, pride. Howard Hendricks, uh, professor, Dallas Seminary, years ago. I think he's home with the Lord. Uh, tells the story of a dear friend of his, a pastor, who ministered for 40 years with distinction and power. But he grew bitter. Something happened at the close of his ministry, and he got really bitter. And in fact, in his last message to his people, his very last message, he shot his mouth off in the flesh. <laughs> it's like all this stuff had been accumulating, and here it was a chance to... Oh, and he let it go. And Hendricks said... I prayed with him on a number of occasions and I never saw, I've never seen hotter tears coursing down the cheeks of a human being as he said, I'd give everything if I could take that message back. I could just take that back. That happens in a lot of settings. In marriage, with our children, why in the world would I have lost it with my dad, with my mom, or my son? Why would I have said that to my son? Why did I say that to my daughter? Why all these years of wilderness? Because I said something that broke the relationship. Oh. Why didn't I finish well with my employer? Peter failed. But you have to know there's a little history leading up to John chapter 18. Peter's failure was not a blowout. It was a slow leak. Secondly, Peter's failure was major but not fatal. In fact, it was a journey to restoration and blessing. 
His failure was major but not fatal. It was a journey. It was a journey that he was beginning to restoration and blessing. Now we move to John 18 and you're saying, what? We're just getting to the text. Oh no, this is going to be disastrous. Don't be frightened. We're going to be here just a short time and I think I can button this up fairly quickly. Next week, Lord willing, we'll weave in and out of these verses in John 18 and talk about the trials that were held as Jesus comes before Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. It's quite an ordeal, this trials. I've been trying to read about it this week. and Oh, wow, how he gets moved from one to another to another, but that's next week. Let's drop in on the 15th verse. John 18, verse 15. Peter couldn't enter the high priest's courtyard after they left Jesus, after they led Jesus away to put him on trial. He had to stay outside the gate, but it was there that a woman spotted him and asked, You're not one of the man's disciples, are you? No, no, he said, I'm not. And that was the first denial. Where did that come from? Peter? Really? You said that? His greatest weakness is the same weakness that a lot of us have. His greatest weakness was the inability to recognize his greatest weakness. If only he could have seen. If only he could have listened when Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times and he could have big flags go up. But he didn't hear. Jesus had warned him, but he couldn't hear it. Now drop down a few more verses until you come to verse 25. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it again, saying, no, I'm not. That was the second denial. If you and I read the story of Peter and we don't see ourselves in it, we're missing something extremely important. We're missing the whole point, in fact. I mean, if, if you can read the story of Peter and say, that would never happen to me, well, then you missed it. The story is there to remind us that any of us, given the right circumstances, always runs the risk of responding like, I never knew him. I didn't know him. This man has followed him for three years. Just being able to admit that there's a weakness in life can keep us from getting to that point where we succumb. Now, verse 26. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Now, have you ever noticed this before, this particular verse? I'm sure I've read this before. I'm sure I've got to have read this before. But when I actually came to look at it this time around, I had either completely forgotten or it never ever registered that... He is being confronted here by one of the relatives of Melchus. The Melchus family is upset. Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Isn't that interesting that someone in the Melchus family spotted Peter? You cut off the ear of my cousin. I'm going to blow your cover. You're one of the disciples. Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Peter wasn't ready for all of this. Jesus was telling him, warning him, preparing him, but there was something 
Overconfidence, pride, unawareness that caught him, and three times he denied the Lord. Well, I'm not accusing, because these verses are not just for Peter. They're for us. And there are a ton of examples in the scripture that fit right into the same scenario. How about Moses, who was the gentlest, mindest, gentlest, kindest soul that ever lived, the meekest man, meek and strong and wise and gentle, and yet he got angry and he struck the rock in his anger? And to think it could never happen to me? What kind of pride does it take to think of Solomon, who the Bible says is the wisest man who ever lived, to think that he could stray from the faith, but think that that could never happen to me? What kind of pride does it take to think of Abraham, the father of faith, that he could doubt God's word, but I never will? Or that Noah who is the example of endurance. 120 years of endurance, remember? And then after the endurance, when he reached the pinnacle of his success, found himself drunk and shamed. What kind of pride does it take to say that that'll never happen to you or never happen to me, that at the pinnacle of our success, I'm going to do something stupid. You're going to do something stupid. These stories are in the Bible for a purpose, to remind us that we're human, that we need God in every circumstance of life, every moment of life. The healthy thing to say is, without God, any of these things could be devastating to us. We need you, Lord. We need to hear you and respond to you and listen to you. My brother did a detour in life uh, from the Lord for 25 years. And uh, he actually came back to the Lord not too long after my... my dad's funeral. And... uh, it was kind of like the prodigal son, you know, where it says that he came to himself. It's kind of like it's kind of like that's how it happened that he came to himself, like he like he caught on, like I've been duped, and the enemy has done a number on me. And then, in humility and in brokenness, he made his way back to the Savior. And he was restored. It was pretty awesome. And then he found his his place of committing his whole life to Christ. It's kind of like, okay, And now? And now what? And now, Lord, you have everything. So these truths are here to remind me that I'm human and I need Christ. And when I recognize my weakness, guess what happens? Well, then I turn to him. 
at the moment of weakness. And instead of denying him, I follow him. Instead of turning from him, I trust him. And that's the great thing about these stories in the gospel. Now, about that look, you know, my grandma's look, the look of a mom in charge. But have you ever stopped to read about the look of Jesus? And it takes us back again to the Gospel of Luke, the same story back in Luke twenty-two sixty-one. It's after the third denial by Peter. There were three distinct denials. And Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Oh. Jesus didn't say a word. He just looked. He just looked. And Peter said to myself, oh, to himself, what have I done? What have I done? He's on the way to the cross. Look at what he's carrying. He's got the weight of the world on him. And now he's got, he's got me acting this way in the midst of, of the big mission that he's got. Oh, and I'm denying him three times. And he's on the way to the cross. What have I done? Peter's failure was major but not fatal. The look of Jesus was not, you're done. You're done. You're out. You're finished. I wonder, I can't even give you the look that Jesus must have looked at Peter. I don't know how that, what that really looked like. Do you, do you get it? Perhaps a sadness? <clears throat> how did he look? But, but hopeful? But still hopeful? Still a future? Healing? It was quite a look. And remember those words that Jesus said to him beforehand? So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. And many of you already have got your minds turned towards John 21. Pastor Norb's going to preach on this text in a few weeks. It's the restoration of Peter after the resurrection. Remember where Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon son of, God, uh, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon, son of John, do you love me? And a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Yeah, Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. So you could be here this morning. And you so desperately need to know that you are restored. And Jesus says to you, feed my sheep. What is he saying? Okay, okay. It's time to go on. You're forgiven, my friend. You are restored. You are needed. So feed my sheep. Find your place in the body. Give me your whole heart and, and move on. 
And I want to invite you to resume the journey. For, for some, it might be by participating in the Lord's Supper. Maybe you haven't taken the bread and the cup for a long, long time. Celebrate your restoration if that's what's happening in your heart. And for all of us, when we take the bread, we're eternally grateful that our Savior didn't abort his mission. That he didn't listen to Peter. Oh Lord, let's not talk about the cross. Jesus knew the cross was why he had come to bear the weight of the sin of all humanity to bear my sin and your sin. And the bread captures the mission of Jesus culminating in the sacrificial death of our Lord. This is my body broken for you. And then the cup captures the meaning of forgiveness and redemption. The blood always symbolizes the covering of sin, the removal of sin through the giving of blood. In the Old Testament, it was through an animal that was offered on an altar. In the New Testament, it's our Lord offering his life on, on, on an altar, on the cross for us. And this is what heals us. This is what restores us. We find wholeness and mercy and grace in Christ and in his surrender of his life on our behalf. So uh, take these elements this morning. Take them to your lips. Take them to your hearts. Take them to your minds. And remember what he's done for us. Take a moment to express your gratitude privately. And then recommit your heart for the journey ahead. And if you're not at a place where you can say, He is my Savior, He is my Lord, then feel quite comfortable to allow the elements to pass. May this be a contemplative moment to consider who Christ is and what He has done. So... Amen, Lord.